Go to the Word of God, to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1026. And we continue and end this evening our short little series on the names of Jesus. Last Lord's Day, looking at Jesus as the son of Abraham in the a.m., in the evening, the son of David this morning as Emmanuel, God with us, and this evening as Jesus. So I want to read the verses 18 through 25 of Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's the reading of God's Word. Children, I wonder how many of you know the meaning of your name. For instance, I wonder if Asher knows that his name means happy, or that anyone named John knows that it means a gift from God. I suppose that most of you children don't know the meaning of your names because Names aren't usually given in our day and age because of their meaning. Often we name our children after loved ones, parents, or grandparents. My brother Ari, for instance, was named by his father Ari after his grandfather Ari and named his firstborn son Ari as well. I don't think that Ari has continued the tradition. I think the name Ari got bumped to a second name. But that's common to name our children after loved ones, parents, or grandparents. Or sometimes we name our children because we just like the sound of the name. Felicity. It just runs off the tongue so smoothly. What a lovely name that would be for a girl, we might say. But when Jesus was named… It wasn't just because it sounded nice, nor was he named after his father or grandfather or anything like that. Jesus was named with a very specific purpose in mind. He was named Jesus because his name has meaning. It means he shall save his people from their sins. This evening, I want to unpack very simply but very helpfully what the name Jesus actually means is. So, who is that He who shall save His people from their sins? Well, it's clear that this He is a human. 
He's given a human name, Jesus, the equivalent, the Greek equivalent of the, the Hebrew name Joshua. And we find that he is in the womb of his mother Mary when Joseph receives this message from the Lord. And so Jesus is a man. He is like us, having been born from his mother Mary. And we see that also in the fact that it was Joseph who named him. This was a, an old way of Joseph taking him into his family because, of course, Joseph was not the, the father of Jesus, strictly speaking, but he became the father of Jesus when he's given the authority to name Jesus, Jesus. That naming is a sort of an adoption ceremony in which Jesus then becomes part of Joseph's family. And not only that, but because Joseph is a son of David, as it says in verse 20, Jesus, when he's called Jesus by Joseph, becomes part of that royal lineage. So Jesus is a real man. But there's something more going on here. Because although we find him at the beginning of our passage in the womb of his mother Mary, we know that he wasn't in the womb in the normal way of procreation between a man and a woman. In fact, at the end of our reading, it says that Joseph did not know her until she had given birth to a son. That is, he had no sexual relations with Mary. She was there not because of natural conception. She was there because she was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. As she was told by the angel Gabriel in Luke's gospel, a passage that was read last Lord's Day and then not referred to at all in the evening sermon, there we're told in Luke 1 verse 32 that this child who was going to be in Mary's womb was going to be called the Son of the Most High. And precisely because the Holy Spirit was going to come upon Mary and the power of the Most High was going to overshadow her, the child that was going to be born to her will be called holy, the Son of God. And so Jesus is not just a mere human. He is divine as well. This comes out, of course, as I mentioned, in that she was conceived uh, with the Holy Spirit, or he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also see it in the name. As I mentioned, the name Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua. And Joshua means the Lord or Jehovah saves. And so if this Jesus is going to be the one who saves his people, then this Jesus must be at the same time Jehovah or the Lord. He is divine. And this is confirmed by the other name that is given in verse 22. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this whole text here from uh, Matthew 1 is a reflection of what it says in Psalm 130, verse 8, that God will himself redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This Jesus, who was to save his people from their sins, is none other than the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Equally God, equally man, as we confess with the Athanasian Creed. And so when you see Jesus, even as a little baby, coming out 
of Mary's womb, laid in the manger, you could say, Hail the incarnate deity. This is God in the flesh. This Jesus is the one who would save his people from their sins. So he is divine. He is man. He's the God-man. And he's also the Savior. He will save his people from their sins. Now the word for save that we read here is a common word in the New Testament, and it can be used in a variety of scenarios. So, for example, the disciples in Matthew 8, verse 25, are on the sea with Jesus in the boat, and the storm is overtaking them and overwhelming them, and they become frightened, and they cry out to Jesus to save them, that is, to save them from the physical danger that they are in. So it can be used in that sense. It's used in another sense of physical healing. You remember the story, children, of uh, the woman who had this problem with blood for 12 years, and she came to Jesus, and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus turned around and said to her, your faith has saved you. That is, your faith in Jesus has healed you of the physical disease that you have been plagued with for all these years. And certainly the Jews, when they thought of the salvation of God, they were thinking of political freedom. They chafed under the domination of of Rome, which had followed the domination of Greece, which had followed the domination of, of the Persian, which had followed the domination of the Babylonians. They longed to be saved, to be liberated, to be under the rule of their king and not under the rule of any other human ruler. They wanted to be saved. But to dispel all doubts and confusion about what Jesus has come to do, the angel tells Joseph that he is to call her his name. Sorry, the angel tells Joseph that he is to call Jesus' name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. And it's important for us to understand that, that the real problem of humanity is not a lack of education, nor is it a lack of finances or of food or of health. The real problem with humanity is the problem of their sins. This is what we see at the the beginning of the Bible in, in the Genesis as the history of our first parents are recounted. Everything was fine. They were living together with one another in harmony and with creation in harmony and living in harmony with their God, their Creator, their Father God. And then sin entered into the world, invaded God's good creation. And when sin invaded, then all hell broke loose in this world. Satan opposed God and everything good and godly and created such havoc and devastation and destruction so that the real problem of humanity is humanity's sins. I mean, not to say that, that health or sickness isn't a problem or that, that poverty and hunger is not a problem, but all the problems that we face have their beginning in human rebellion against God and in the corresponding curse that God has placed upon this world because of human rebellion. That's the problem of humanity. The problem is sin. 
And so though we pray when we're unwell, we pray for healing. And when we're in trouble, we pray for deliverance. We may do so, but they never really get at the heart of the problem. Because you can be well physically and stand before the judgment seat of Christ without someone having saved you from your sins. You can be wealthy, have lots of finances, but on the day of judgment, that will do you no good if you haven't found a Savior from your sins. The problem is sins. And our Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world. As the Apostle Paul says so memorably in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, to save sinners. Well, what is it about sin that we need saving from? Well, first of all, we need saving from the condemnation of sin, the guilt uh, that cleaves to each one of us. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they became liable to judgment. That was the threat. The day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And that threat of physical death and spiritual death and eternal death, that's upon all of Adam's posterity so that we come into this world under condemnation because we've broken God's law. We've rebelled against His rightful authority. We have shaken our fist at Him and have said, we do not want you to rule uh, over us. And because of our guilt, we have only the expectation of the judgment of God to come cascading upon us. And Jesus is the one who saves us from our condemnation. So that as Paul says so beautifully in Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus is the Savior who saves us from the condemnation of sin. But He also saves us from the power of sin. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, or Romans 6, rather. You remember how the Lord Jesus says that whoever sins is a slave to sin, and, and we've all felt sin's slay, enslaving power or the attempt of sin to enslave us, to put us in bondage so that we feel that we have no other option than to obey its dictates. And that's the way humans come into this world. Apart from God's grace, they are They are in bondage to sin, that the only thing they can do is displease God. It is impossible for them to please God. They don't wish to, nor can they, because the the power of sin is so great, so gripping, that all humans can do apart from grace is sin. And so it's a tyranny that will destroy us because the ultimate consequence of sin is eternal death. And our Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to break the power of reigning sin, to free us from the tyranny of the devil, to deliver us from the power of sin in all of its entrapping power, and to set us free. So that as Paul says in Romans 6, if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have died with Him in His death, if we've been raised with Him in His resurrection, then sin no longer reigns over us. We are free from the power, the the power of sin that dominates us, and we are able then to become slaves of righteousness and to do the will of God from the heart. 
Jesus saves us, not only from the condemnation of sin, but he saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And Jesus saves us from the presence of sin. It's true that uh, sin no longer condemns us because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. It's true that Jesus has delivered us from the power of sin, but we're all too keenly aware that we are still plagued with the presence of sin. It's the presence of sin all around us, living in a world under, under uh, the, the, the dominating power of sin. I, someone came up to me last Lord's Day, or the Lord's Day before, talking about what a trial it must have been for our Lord Jesus, who, who was perfectly holy, whose every inclination was to do his Father's will, to be in the midst of sinners, to see sin all around him, to see his disciples bickering with one another, to see people so enslaved that they could not be set free, how it must have grieved his sensitive soul. And that's the reality for us. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been brought into the family of God. We've been delivered from the condemning uh, power of sin and its uh, controlling power. And yet we still live in sin. We still have the presence of sin around us. We, we do the things, Paul says, that we do not want to do. The things that we want to do, we do not do. And, and we cry out, when, O oh Lord, will you deliver us from this body of death? And the answer is, we will one day be delivered from this body of death because Jesus has saved us from our sins. And one day He will bring us into His eternal kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and holiness where there's no more sin and therefore there's no more sadness anymore. It'll be a place where all things have been made new. That's what our Lord Jesus has, will bring us into because He's the Savior of sins. He saves us from the condemnation of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin in our lives. But it's important for us to note that Jesus does not do this by His birth, but He does this by His death. Of course, His birth was important, all the animal sacrifices and their ineffectiveness throughout the early history of God's people is, is a testimony to that. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. In fact, the annual day of atonement ceremony was, was an annual reminder that sins were not forgiven. And so there was always this longing for a better sacrifice, a better lamb who would actually take away the sins of God's people. And it had to be a person because it was humanity that had sinned. It needed to be a person who had to be the sacrifice for sins. And, and so it's important that Jesus became a man. If he did not, he could not be our Savior. And it's important that he was a man because if he had remained God, he could not die. And so he needed humanity he needed our human nature, not only so that he could live in our human nature and experience the things that we experience and obey in the ways that he ought to obey, but also so that he could die in our nature because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so it's important that Jesus was born, but Jesus was born to die. 
That's why the Gospel writer Matthew emphasizes that right at the headwaters of his letter. Jesus was going to be the Savior of sinners, the substitute for humanity, and that's why he was going to have to die. And so in Matthew 20, verse 28, our Lord Jesus speaks about that himself. He says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how was the Son of Man, the exalted divine one, the one to whom the nations were given as his inheritance, how was the Son of Man going to serve us? Well, Jesus tells us he's going to serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. He was going to give his life as a substitute and as the payment price to deliver people from the judgment of God and the tyranny of the law and the condemnation of sin. Jesus was going to do that, not by his birth, but by his death on the cross. He was going to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as Jesus says, eating the Lord's Supper with his disciples in Matthew 26, he took bread. And then after the bread, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It was the shedding of blood that broke the power of sin and its condemning and controlling power. It is Jesus dying as a substitute on the cross taking responsibility for the sins of his people, becoming the second Adam who came to undo what the first Adam had done by his disobedience. Christ, by his obedience, then goes to the cross as the representative of his people, as a public person, bears the judgment of God upon himself so that he dies the death of the damned. And when he dies... He has delivered his people. He saves his people from their sins so that his death becomes our life. His condemnation becomes our justification. It is by Jesus' death that he saves his people from their sins. This bears pondering for us, doesn't it? It means that we need to understand ourselves as we really are, as sinners who have no hope except in Jesus Christ. And then as we understand that, as we feel the full weight of that, of our helplessness, as, our, uh, as we need such a Savior, then to see that God has provided someone in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that God himself came to earth, took upon himself our humanity, and in that divine human nature died on the cross. It beggars explanation. It's remarkable that God has designed things this way in His profound wisdom and love so that sinners might be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus, for He, the God-man, shall save His people from their sins. Well, who are His people that Jesus has come to save? Well, if you were a Jew and uh, you were reading this gospel that was addressed particularly to the Jews, 
you would come across this and you would say, yes, I knew it. That's us. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That God himself, Psalm 130 verse 8, would redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's us. Of course it's us that Jesus saves. So Matthew, the gospel writer, is very careful to be clear about whom Jesus has given his life for. And he makes it clear that Jesus hasn't come to save all Jews, nor has Jesus come to save only Jews. This double emphasis comes to expression in Matthew chapter 8, that story of the centurion who came to Jesus and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, and he invites Jesus to come and heal him. And the centurion says, you don't need to come. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus turns around, and he faces the Jewish crowd, and he says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he goes on to say that I tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So yes, Jesus has come to save his people from all their sins. But it isn't that his people are all Jews. No, some of the Jews, some who have been brought up within the sacred lineage of Abram, who had the privileges of belonging to the people of God, to whom God had given his law on Mount Sinai, for whom God had shown a special care as they traveled through the wilderness, to whom God had given the land of Canaan as their land on promise. Not all those who were descended from Abraham were going to be sitting in the kingdom of heaven at the table with the patriarchs Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. His people doesn't mean all the Jews, nor does his people mean only the Jews. Because as Jesus is clearly demonstrating here, the centurion, a Gentile, was going to sit with many others who were going to come from east and west, and they, the Gentiles, were going to recline at table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Not all the Jews, nor only Jews. So then who are the people of God whom Jesus saves? Well, you can look at it from the perspective of eternity. And you know that before the foundation of the world, God, out of the mass of humanity, chose certain people to whom He would give the privilege of salvation. It's not because they were better than others or more clever than other people or because they had more potential. No, it had nothing to do with them at all. God didn't base His decision to choose some and to neglect others based on anything in the person themselves. No, it's a sovereign, unconditional choice. He has his own reasons. Of course he does, because God does nothing willy-nilly or haphazardly. He's always acting in wisdom, but he chooses some and bypasses others. And those whom he has chosen for salvation, he then gives to the Lord Jesus Christ so that Jesus can say, they were yours but you have given them to me. 
so that His people are those who from all eternity have been given to the Son by the Father so that the Son would take responsibility for them and come to earth and die in their place, the death that they deserved by His death on the cross. As the Lord Jesus says in John's Gospel, I lay down my life for the sheep, for those whom the Father has given me. That's looking at it from heaven's perspective. His people are those whom the Father has given to the Son. But there's another perspective that we can look at it from, and that's the perspective from earth. Who are the people of God? Who are the ones for whom Jesus has given His life and saved from their sins? Well, it's for those who believe in the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For Christ was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him, that those who hear of what He has done as the substitute for sinners might, might go out to Him and embrace Him as their Savior and take Him as their Redeemer. And maybe some of you need to do that very thing this evening because you've never done it before. You don't know if the Father has given you to the Son. That's none of your business. You have no access to that at this point but you do know that God calls you to embrace the Lord Jesus by faith, to take Him as your Savior, to repent of your sins, to acknowledge that your sins will destroy you, and you need a deliverer. You need someone to save you. And I'm here this evening to tell you that there is someone who will save you, the Lord Jesus. He he offers Himself to you, and He says, take me, and I will redeem you. I will rescue you. I will do whatever needs to be done so that the condemnation of sin will never be yours, so that you'll be freed from the power of sin, and that one day you'll be freed from the presence of sin. Maybe someone here this evening has never done that, and I urge you to do that this evening before you go. You can do it right now. You could say, oh, Lord Jesus, save me, and he will. But some of you have done it. You've done it for years. You've known that the only salvation you have is because of what the Lord Jesus has done. At times, for sure, you, you, you might forget about that. At times, you might think that your contributions are, are really significant, that somehow the fact that I read the Bible or go to church or or, or things like that, that they contribute, but then, but then God in His kindness and mercy shows you your utter bankruptcy without Christ, and, and then you remember again, yes, it's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who has saved me from my sin and will continue to save me from my sin. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so this name of the Lord Jesus is a precious name because it spells our salvation. The Lord Jesus, He will save His people from their sins. That's why I chose as our hymn of preparation 492 how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. So that as the people of God we worship 
the Lord Jesus, the God who has become man, the God incarnate. We worship him because he has saved us from our sins. Let's pray together. We confess, O Lord, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see Thee as Thou art, I'll praise Thee as I ought. We pray that You would give us a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in His person and work as the God-man, the exalted one who humbled Himself for us and for our salvation. We thank You for the death that He died, the sacrifice that He paid. We thank You for His glorious resurrection that vindicated Him and declared Him to be the victor. And we thank You that He is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us so that He has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us. Our complete salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We pray for those who do not have the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that you would draw them to him with cords of love, that they might be so impressed with their own helplessness and so drawn by the kindness and tenderness and power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners. And we pray that throughout this world, as the Lord Jesus is lifted up as His name is proclaimed among the nations, that many would come out of darkness and into Jesus, the light of the world, so that they might be saved, and that they might be a part of that great multitude that no one can number, when we will sing, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever. Amen.